Welcome to the Celebration Church Podcast. We believe God wants to speak into your life through this message. If you're interested in knowing more about Celebration Church, you can visit our website at celebrationedmonton.com and find us on Instagram and Facebook at Celebration EDM. Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoy this message. Well, today we're going to be actually starting a brand new series that'll take us right up to Father's Day. And uh, man, people are excited about Father's Day. We had somebody come by this week asked if it was this Sunday. <laughs> Is that car show happening this Sunday? He said, close. Third Sunday of June. Oh, okay, I'll be back. Um, if you're new here, you've never been here for a Father's Day pre-pandemic. Okay, I have to put that in. Um, we run a car show on Father's Day as an outreach to our city. And uh, we would have like 400 show cars, and it would be quite a quite a deal. So, anyway, it's it's coming to life, it's resurrecting, it's being reborn. All kinds of Bible words I can throw in there on the car show, but we look forward uh, to making a difference in families on Father's Day. And so today we're starting a brand new series called Beautiful Resistance, and this is about the fact that our lives live in resistance to things that would want to make us off track, would want to diminish our faith, that would want to distract us, that would want to cause us to compromise on convictions in order to accommodate the wishes of, uh, you know, the general populace or, or the general culture that we live in, all of, all of those things, beautiful resistance. So that's what we are going to be talking about here today. You know, you don't have to get too far into reading your Bible before you find idolatry. Exodus chapter 32, we're not even into the promised land yet. Moses is meeting with God up on a mountain and the people are down at the bottom and they're waiting for his return. And all it took was just a little bit of impatience and everybody was like taking out their gold earrings, you know, and tossing them into the fire to, to melt them down so they could make a golden calf. I mean, you know, how do I know it was impatience, by the way? Well, the Bible says this, when the people saw that Moses was delayed. How many of you know, if you feel like God is being too slow to answer your prayers, you might do something stupid? True. Just look to Abraham. He's one who did that too. If you feel like, well, God, you should have had this in my life by now. You should have changed that in my life by now. You might do something really dumb instead of being patient and waiting for God to bring about what it is that you're believing for. And so I wonder, you know, when it says the people saw that Moses delayed, well, who was holding the watch in the first place? Who said Moses was going to be gone and he'd be back by dinner or any of those sorts of things? It doesn't indicate that. But in their perception, they felt Moses should have got back quicker. So then they end up building this idol, this golden calf. And, and uh, God says this about them. He says, the people have corrupted themselves. People have corrupted themselves. That's what idolatry does to you. It corrupts you. Now, what did that corruption look like? Well, they gave their heart and their soul to the attention of something that would never ultimately bless their lives, nor had it ever blessed their lives. Idolatry is the worship of an unworthy object. And maybe today you're thinking, okay, we're doing a lesson on idolatry, pretty creative kind of church. Should have had a few little, you know, samples of some statues up here, you know, maybe some garden gnomes, you know, <laughs> little elf here, little miniature Shrek, 
frog, you know, a few things like that, you know, bring those up. Maybe some three-foot-high chess pieces. They would make nice little idols. Of course, you know, there's the Buddha statue with his shirt on, of course. We're in church. Come on now. And a lot of times that's kind of where our mind goes. When we hear the word idol, we hear the word idolatry, we, we think of some civilization underdeveloped that carved out something that they all go and bow down to at, at some point throughout the week. But really, an idol can be anything. It can be material. But an idol can also be an ideology. It can be an activity. It can be a relationship. It can be a philosophy. Our problem isn't that we create idols. Our problem is that we idolize without even knowing it. And that's the key. Our idols are just so woven into the fabric of our society that they seem like they're normal ways of life. They're work, money, sex, status, sports, music, materialism, philosophies, and values. The list is seemingly endless. And we think that idols are just bad things. Oh yeah, that's that bad thing you do, idolatry, that's bad. They're not necessarily bad things. They can be, but they're just other things. Other things. Other things in life can be made a priority over God being the priority of our life, and that's what the Bible calls idolatry. How does worship resist idolatry? Well, as we begin to get into this series, I want to make mention of a book that's kind of a backdrop to this that's titled Beautiful Resistance, and uh, our creative team decided, why don't we use that title for our series? That was creative of them. At any rate, <laughs> moving right along. Beautiful Resistance by John Tyson. So if you wanted to download it or, or purchase the hard copy and read it along, uh, it'd be a great read for you. How does worship resist idolatry? Number one, worship is about keeping your life in order with Jesus at first place in every place. Jesus at first place in every place. I'm sure you've had the experience um, where you've had somebody in the home, probably your wife did this, she picked something up from Ikea. She went out and bought the new barbecue. And then she decided to put it together without reading the instructions. Probably your wife. Just suggesting that that might have been something she did. Taking the attention off all of the men in the house who we know we've all done that. We pick up that little black and white book and we're like, what the? Okay. And then, and then we get into that. We get into putting together that Ikea piece or get into putting together the barbecue, whatever it is. And we're on about step 17 and we realize we've missed something. Oh my goodness, this piece has to go in here. But then we go, we find that book we threw in the garbage and we realize that was like step three. And, and now it's very difficult to try and make a step three happen when you're already at step 17 and maybe we're even having to disassemble some of the things um, that we're doing and hoping that no other member of the family, specifically our spouse, would be watching in the moment <laughs> because it's so embarrassing. But the point is this, is that when you get things out of order, it messes life up. It does. When things are out of order, they just don't work as they should. Romans chapter 1, 21 talks about this. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile 
in their reasonings and their senseless hearts were darkened. In other words, things were out of order. They knew God, but listen, they did not honor him as God. By not honoring him as God was completely out of order. This describes, quite frankly, a lot of people that I have met over the years. People who would say, oh, I believe in Jesus. I, you know, I, I, I believe in the gospel. And, and yet, they certainly don't honor him as God in their life. In other words, I believe in Jesus. I just don't let him be the ultimate decision maker in my world. I believe in Jesus, but I'm just not intentionally seeking him to follow him. I believe in Jesus, but I make a lot of choices in my life disregarding scripture. They got their worship out of order and that became the root of having their lives out of order. When our lives get out of order, we feel the pain of things not functioning the way that they should. There are things in, in our life that are meant to have an order. In fact, the Bible talks about all kinds of things that are meant to have an order. For instance, when God instituted the Sabbath, he did that for you. He said, hey, you're supposed to work six days, but you better have one that's off. You better have a rest. Skip taking a day off. Skip having a Sabbath. Work seven days a week, long hours, and do it for weeks on end, and you will live in the pain of exhaustion, emotionally, mentally, and even physically. Eat an imbalanced diet that overloads on carbs and sugar you'll feel the pain in your body of that imbalanced order of eating or at least the pain of trying to get your clothes on when you don't fit anymore, okay? Ignore the most important relationships in your life because you've prioritized your work or some other pursuit in life and you'll eventually feel the relational pain of that being out of order. When our lives are out of order, we feel the pain of it. Now, the scriptures concerning worship are all about getting things in order. That's what they're about. And I hope as I, as I say the word worship, there will be times when I'm referring to this, gathering for worship, but it's a bigger picture. The word worship has to do with our dedication to Jesus in our life. It it's actually has to do with how you do life. You know, Romans 12 talks about our acceptable you know, worship, which is to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice. In other words, it's our dedication to Jesus. It's a bigger picture than you singing three songs on a Sunday morning. It's about how you do life from day to day, intentionally putting Christ first in your life. The scriptures concerning worship are all about getting things in order. They're about first things first. They're about having your priority straight. You'll notice I didn't say plural. I didn't say, you should get your priorities straight. Well, if, if you think everything's a priority, the question becomes, what's the priority? Because they're not all a priority. There's only one priority. And, and this is what the Bible teaches, is that Jesus is meant to be our priority. You can only have one priority in life. Exodus chapter 20 and verse three says this, you shall have no other gods before me. This is the first commandment. The first thing that comes out of God's mouth has to do with worship. Have no other gods before me. It's the first commandment. Mark chapter 12, verse 30. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, with all of your strength. Let's read this one together because it's so good. And you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind, and all of your strength. Four alls. 
And if you have anything else left after that, you can do whatever you want with it, okay? <laughs> but I think living up to those four alls is pretty complete and it's pretty, pretty obvious where Jesus is to stand and his purposes for our life are to stand in our life. Um, years ago in, in our youth ministry, Risen, uh, some people put together a song called I'm All In. It's a great song. Some of you are old enough to remember it and young enough to remember it all at the same time. But, but really what it was about was this. It was saying, listen, if you're gonna live for Jesus, he's not just like a part of your life, you're all in. It's like the only way that you can live for him is you have to live all in. Matthew chapter six and verse 33 says, we are to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be provided to you. Seek what? First. Put it first. Not just a place, but first place. Worship is about setting the priority of your heart. So here's the question. What's of first importance? What is it that drives your life? What is the decision maker for you? Idols are distorted affections that allow anything else to take the place that only Jesus should have in your life. Uh, here's the truth. Everyone has an idol. Absolutely everyone has an idol. It may not be a little carving that you bow down to in your living room or something like that. And even if you don't claim to be religious, even if you're like, you know, I'm here this morning because... My mom, she drugged me out here on Mother's Day, and wouldn't you know it, she did it again this week. Or whatever reason you're here. Maybe you're not even religious. Maybe you're watching in. You just tuned in, and you're just kind of checking out this whole Christianity thing. I want you to know, you don't have to be religious, and yet you can still have an idol. You can still have something that absorbs your heart and your passion, something that drives the choices of your life. Now, before I came to Christ, my career was my idol. It was first place. It was my heart and soul. I was all in. But here's the deal. It does not have to be a tangible thing like that. It doesn't have to be something that's a material thing. The desire for popularity can be your idol. The desire for status, recognition. How about acceptance and approval? Just doing everything you can to gain acceptance and approval can be the leading factors that drive our lives. And in that case, they've become our idol. These are idols of the soul. They're perceived needs. They're perceived ambitions that take priority over following Jesus. Now, how do you know it's idolatry? It's when I want it bad enough to compromise Scripture and my relationship with Christ to have it. You see, what you pursue, you serve. And that goes for anything in life. You know, what you pursue, you serve. Maybe you're at a point in life where you're pursuing a career. You're gaining all the education. You're getting all the experience. You're doing everything you can to serve that end goal if that's something you pursue. This is just the truth, by the way. This isn't like right or wrong. This is just the way it is. If you're pursuing, you know, I want to learn how to play an instrument, you're, you're going to serve it by giving your time to practice and lessons and all of those sorts of things. Your idol is found in what or who you serve. Matthew chapter 6 and verse 24 says, No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and you will despise the other. 
Again, it goes back to what I said earlier. You can only have one priority. You cannot serve both God and money. One of the most common idols the Bible speaks about is the idol of money. It's putting money in the wrong place in your life. Now, making money is not a problem. God does not have a problem with money, by the way. Having money is not a sin. Money is there to serve you. But if your life is now shaped by serving it, then it has taken priority. And your life can be a life that becomes driven by money. Oh, and by the way, money can be your idol even though you don't have a lot of it. It's about the place it holds in your heart, not the amount that's in your bank account. It can be your idol regardless of how much you have. And now your life is all about maybe spending money, saving money, making more money. Every decision that you make, money has the final word on that decision. Matthew chapter 6 and verse 21 says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What we do with our money reflects what's in our heart. That isn't like just true of Christians, by the way. That's true of everybody. What everybody, anybody, regardless of what you believe or your faith or any of those things, how you manage your money is always a reflection of where your heart is. Do you know that giving is an act of worship? Yeah. Biblically, giving is an act of worship. In fact, if you go into the scriptures and you start back in the Old Testament, before you get bogged down in Leviticus, We've all been there. Hallelujah. <laughs> giving was the first act of worship. In fact, giving came before singing. Oh, pastor, I love to worship. I like to get my worship on. Sing, praise the Lord. Dance a little. And then it comes time for this other part of worship called the offering. And it's like, oh, I tune out on that part. That's that's not my style. No, you're just in disobedience to God. It's really what it is. And you haven't surrendered your life fully to Christ. That's why you're still controlling something that's meant to honor the Lord. Giving is an act of worship. Comes before singing in the Bible. We worship with our wallet, not just our words. The biblical stewardship of the tithe is described as giving a tenth to the Lord, but it's not just described as that. It's described as giving the first tenth, not the leftovers. Why? Because God is meant to have first place in your life, not the leftovers. When someone's heart is turned from the Lord and God is no longer a priority in their life, generosity is the first thing to go. It is the heart indicator Now, how can I tell if money has become an idol? Well, there's probably lots of ways, but here's one of them. When money is an idol, you will look up to others who have what you don't have and you will long for it rather than considering how fortunate you are compared to much of the world and being grateful for what you have. And we live in a time where there's plenty of reason to be grateful for what we have. Number two, worship guards your heart and keeps your passion in its place. 
Worship guards your heart and keeps your passion in its place. Proverbs tells us to watch over our heart with all diligence. In other words, that's not God's job, that's your job. We can pray and say, Lord, would you, would you search my heart? There's that scripture in the Bible. Lord, would you search? In other words, would you show me what's in here that I'm not seeing? That's a valid prayer. But we don't pray a prayer and say, God, would you watch over my heart? God already said, no, that's your job. It's your heart. You own it. You determine what goes into it. You determine what you believe. You determine uh, what information you will uh, take in and all the rest of it. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 24 says, let us consider how we may spur one another on. This is a good Alberta Bible verse right here. Cowboy <laughs> illustration on a horse. Let us spur one another on towards love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. This verse is a sandwich verse. In the middle is the command to be meeting together. Historically, that would have meant both in small groups as well as in large worship settings just like we are having here today. The church still practices those same principles, smaller groups where we actually get to know people and are known by people and then larger worship settings. But on either side of this activity of meeting together, of engaging in worship together, it says you're gonna spur one another on towards love and good deeds and you're going to encourage one another. These are heart commandments. They're telling us that our worship together impacts our heart. And listen, I can drive down the road, I can turn on my favorite worship music and listen to it in my car, and that's all good. But there's something different that happens in this context. There's something undeniable that happens when it's connected and associated with community, not just by myself, you know, alone on, on my own. There's an impact that happens. There's a level of encouragement and influence and even spurring. Come on, a little spur sometimes. We need a little spur, you know what I'm saying? But the, the thing about it is, is that happens in the context of this, that there's this horizontal community involvement of worshiping together that, takes, that brings you to a level of inspiration and freedom and, and enthusiasm and being fired up about Jesus in your life that you just don't get the same on your own. And so these are heart commandments. We need to avoid the, the Sunday slide. That's what I call it, the Sunday slide. So what's that all about? Well, that's where we slide into starting to miss worship for this or that, you know, once in a while. But missing worship becomes then our new normal, not just once in a while. And, uh, and by the way, I'm gonna talk about kids for a little bit. Don't tune out, oh yeah, that's for married people. You're single, one day you'll be married, remember this. Kids, oh, the kids. You know the kids? We'd have been there, but kids had practice. Kids had practice. Then they had another one, and another, and another. So now, the culture of using the Lord's Day for sports has replaced family worship. Mm. You got on the Sunday slide and it was going away from where you should be. Tell me, parents, how passionate do you think your kids will be towards Jesus when they've spent their years loving a game as their God and their priority? How impactful will that become to their future when they're facing 
moral choices in life? What are the chances that they will seek the Lord, be led by the Spirit, and discover God's purposes and his will for their life when their relationship to a game is stronger than it is to the Lord God? It's a godless culture that is making these Sunday sports decisions that, and don't let their godless values drive you away from a Christ-centered life. I made that decision, my wife and I made that decision, I should say, a long time ago. When our kids were little, they were starting to get into sports and this and that. We said, hey, you can do whatever you want. It's all good. It's all good. But we'll be letting the coach know that we're in God's house on Sunday morning, not in a practice. We just set that as a standard. Why? Because we determine that Christ sets the culture of our life, not culture telling us what Christ should do. Romans chapter one and verse 21 says, for even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their reasonings, listen, and their senseless hearts were darkened. Worship impacts the condition of your heart. I mean, even just being here today and engaging in this environment of worship by way of music and, and taking in the lyrics and all the rest of it and the atmosphere of the presence of the Lord that happens with all of that. It impacts the condition of your heart. It's about the spirit of your life. When our worship is out of order and Christ isn't first place in our life, our hearts go astray. There's a story in the scriptures about the elders of Israel who went up to Ezekiel because they wanted to get a word from the Lord. And, and, and so think about it. Think about these people. These are the elders of Israel. These are like leading people in a God-fearing uh, nation. And they go up to Ezekiel. They want a word from the Lord. And then Ezekiel speaks, Ezekiel chapter 14 and verse three, and here's the word they got. Son of man, these men have set up idols in their hearts and have put wicked stumbling blocks before their faces. Should I let them inquire of me at all? God looks at them and, and he sees what was really in their heart. And it speaks to this truth, and that is this, that worship is about having your heart in the right place, not just your participation. And sadly, you can attend services, you can read the Bible, you can even give generously and still not have your heart where it should be. And there can still be something more important than God and his purposes that are operating in your life. You see, worship should, is about our priority, but worship is also about our passion. And if we don't have both our passion connected with our priority, it just doesn't work because ultimately you're gonna go with your passion. You can say, Jesus is my priority. If your heart's in a different place, I'm telling you, it'll lead you. And it's a scary, scary thing if you lose your passion and it doesn't bother you. It's a scary place to be if you can look and say, you know, I used to be really into reading the Word of God and I used to be really into, you know, worship music. I used to be really into, you know, being a part of, uh, of a church team. I used to be, you know, really into uh, hearing the Word of God preach. I used to be really into all of these things, all of these things that are connected to building your walk with the Lord. And now you don't care. I used to be really into reaching people that are far from God and those opportunities to share my faith, but I'm not as excited about that anymore. That's a scary place to be. Samson, the Bible says, had the presence of God leave his life and he didn't even notice it. 
We can go through the motions that make Christ seem like our priority while something else has our heart. Revelation chapter two calls the church out for this and labels all the great things that they're doing and then wraps it up by saying, but you've left your first love. Your heart's not where it should be. God's not just looking for your faith and obedience. He's after your heart and your passion. So what's your passion? Do you have a passion to know Jesus? Do you have a passion for the word of God? Do you have a passion for those who are without Christ in the form of compassion? Do you have a passion to see the next generation follow Jesus and live in God's purposes for their lives? Or do you have something else that dominates your attention and ultimately drives your choices? Listen, heart idols are those things that we put before God and they can be values, affections, and thoughts. Jesus is meant to be our priority and he's also meant to be our passion. Here's the last part. Number three, worship resists being shaped by culture instead of Christ. Our worship resists being shaped by culture instead of Christ. There's another idol that would like to take the place of Jesus in our life, and it's the idols of culture. Culture idols, by the way, are not just material things. Their values, their ideologies, their beliefs, their ways of thinking, their philosophies, all of which do drive practices. What is the impact then of living in a culture where they do not honor God in their lives? I mean, you don't have to be a Christian very long to figure out that you're a fish swimming upstream, right? You believe things that a whole lot of other people don't believe. You have a commitment to a lifestyle that a whole lot of other people don't have that commitment to. You have a desire to know a Jesus that others want to ignore and even try to discredit. Well, the result was deception. Romans chapter one and verse 21 says their thinking became futile. Futile means pointless, nonsense, deceived. The nature of idols is deception. Whatever it is that you put above God and above his word has deceived you into thinking that following it is of greater importance than following the Lord in your life. It's the classic, has God said from the Garden of Eden, you know, getting, getting Adam and Eve off of having God first in their life. The primary ideology, by the way, of our culture is selfishness. It's, it's me first. If we were to put a slogan on a red hat, it would read, make me great again. <laughs> and it's Christian nonsense. Christ exists in my life to serve me rather than I was created to serve the Lord. This is that kind of self-centered thinking. God is there for me. The gospel is all about me. It's to bless me, it's to prosper me, to heal me, to answer all of my prayers for my desires, to give me what I want in life. God is all about my comfort. So all of my spiritual activity, by the way, happens in the context of what works best for me. Never sacrificing, never inconvenienced. After all, Jesus is for me. Jesus is in my life to bless my family, bless my health, bless my business. You know, it's Jesus and me. Yes, Jesus blesses our lives, heals our lives. He does all of that stuff. But this idea that Christ is in our world and it's all about me, 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 me. However, when you've made yourself 
the idol, and Jesus, your servant, you have exchanged the truth of God for a lie. You really have. Your thinking is futile. It, it will take you to a place where you will walk away from God. And here's when you'll do it. When you stop getting your prayers answered the way you would like them answered. When God stops serving you the way that you thought he should serve you. This is a shallow, self-serving culture infused thinking. We are called to live lives for a purpose created by him. And as long as you keep Christ on the throne, and as long as you keep yourself as his servant, you are in for the richest, most meaningful, most fulfilling experience of life that exists on the planet. Whatever you put at the highest place that's higher than the word of God is the practical measure of what has become an idol to you, and it has deceived you. Listen, false gods create false laws and false definitions of success and failure and false definitions of value and importance. Okay, one last thing. Here's the other thing it creates and that happens in our culture. Distortion. We live in a very distorted culture. If you haven't figured it out yet, you don't have to look too far to see it. Romans 1.21 says, their foolish hearts were darkened. The scripture warns about calling good evil and evil good. And idols always take good and evil and position them contrary to God's definitions. They deceive us. The scripture says it's foolish. That is, it's without understanding and it's actually senseless. Distortion is a good word to describe the world that we live in. Consider how distorted. Now, I mean, I could give you piles of examples. I'm just going to land on one. But just consider how distorted our culture has become. Here's one of them. Disagreement is now automatically considered hatred. If you disagree, you're a hater. You hate. You disagree, you hate. Why are you hating? You disagree with me. If you agreed with me, it's good. But if you disagree, well, you must have hate. That must be what's going on with you. Listen, I drive a Honda. I have friends who drive a Chevy. I don't hate them because I disagree with their car choice. I might hate their car, but no, moving right along. It doesn't matter. But the point is this. Just because I disagree doesn't mean I have ill will in my heart. Okay, the idea that disagreements means you are hateful is quite frankly prejudiced. Disagreement is now considered a violation that should be shut down and shut up or censored. Listen, Jesus was never afraid with, of the scribes and Pharisees and dialogue with them and the many disagreements that he ran into with them. Jesus answered them all and he didn't censor them. He didn't say, that's it. You're losing your Facebook account for that. We're done with you. You're off Twitter. We're cutting you out. Jesus wasn't intimidated. He wasn't a chicken or a sissy. He would go ahead and engage and have the argument and show that the wisdom of God could prevail over the nonsense that was coming out of their mouth. The pressure today is to not have an opinion or a conviction that opposes what the crowd is saying. And listen, if you're gonna follow Jesus, you are going to have an opinion and you are gonna have a conviction that opposes what the crowd is saying. Remember this, it was the crowd that was telling Joshua to go back to Egypt when he was trying to enter the promised land. And it was the crowd that was shouting crucify that put Jesus on a cross. You can't explain away scripture that scriptures that speak so directly and so clearly to sexuality, morality, biblical marriage, and a host of other things 
claiming the 2,000 years since the time of Christ gives us permission to redefine truth. That is theological suicide and nonsense. So where do our convictions need to come from when it comes to morality? Well, think about this. Romans chapter 12 says this. It says, don't be conformed to the behavior and customs of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. We've talked a lot about this verse, but I want to give you a different perspective, and that is this. When it says, don't be conformed to the behavior and customs, and then it gives you something intentional that you need to do to prevent that from happening, what it means is this. If you're not intentional about it, the culture around you will conform you to it. It's true. I've met believers that will say things out of their mouth, and I'm going, that is in direct contradiction to Scripture. You are completely brainwashed by the culture. You're buying into the culture's narrative, and then you're claiming that as being, you know, Christian or being biblical or whatever it is, and it's your lack of understanding the Word of God. You are being conformed by the culture because you've not transformed your mind by the Word of God. 2 Corinthians 10 and 5 says this, we are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God, and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Once again, as we look at this scripture, it's saying to us this, that there are speculations, there are lofty thoughts, there are, another translation says, philosophies that are raised up against the knowledge of God, but then it's commanding us, you better take them captive. You see, if you don't take them captive, they take you captive. If you don't deal with the wrong thinking that comes from the culture around you, you begin to think like the culture around you. In fact, I'll bet you if I was to circle back to my little chat about what happens on Sunday morning and kids in sport, some of you struggled with that. And that's just an indicator that you're being conformed by the culture. Once again, it's facing these things and realizing where is this coming from? So here's the question. Did you form your beliefs and opinions from what culture is preaching to you every day on social media and television and then submit that to Scripture? Or do you form your beliefs and your values from Scripture and then critique the culture from a Christ-centered perspective? The first one has our lives shaped by culture. The second one has our lives leading and critiquing culture from the wisdom of God's Word and not from moral superiority or pride and arrogance, but from the wisdom of God's Word. I think one of the reasons so many believers find it so easy to buy into what the culture says is their ignorance of Scripture. But we are called to influence and impact the culture. We are called to bring truth and grace, and we are called to lead people to freedom, not condone lies and misguided thinking. The church is called to be the pillar of truth in the world. Would you please stand as we take time to close in prayer? If you just bow, I want to pray for all of us here. Father, in the name of Jesus, I, I pray for each and every person here that, Lord, as they get into the Word of God, as they meditate on Scripture, as they consider the words of Jesus, Lord, the wisdom of your Word, Father, may you build conviction. May you build understanding. Lord, may we not live lives that are senseless. May we not be, Lord, so flexible. We just fit into everything that culture around us asks for. But Lord, may we be people who are willing to go against the crowd, to stand on truth, 
to not be afraid to have a conviction or an opinion that differs. Father, I thank you for that being settled through the word so that we can see what's really going on around us and deal with it from that posture in Jesus' name. With our heads bowed, I wanna pray one more prayer because I believe there's people here today that perhaps your understanding of Jesus was much like what I talked about earlier, that Christ has come into your life for you. And if you live that way and you think that way, what'll happen is you'll be disappointed. You won't have the vibrant Christian experience that you should be having. You won't have the depth of relationship with God because you haven't put God in his rightful place. You can't reassign Jesus and still have a relationship with him. And so what'll happen is you'll get disappointed. You'll become disillusioned. You'll eventually walk away and say something like, well, it wasn't really working for me. Well, here's how it works. You change your perspective. You renew your mind. You realize, man, I, don't, I'm, I shouldn't be posturing myself, thinking this way. I wonder what God is going to do for me next. But instead, posturing yourself to say, I wonder what God wants me to do for Him next. I wonder what plan God has for me. I wonder what purpose I should be applying my life to. I wonder how I should be serving the Lord and seeking first the kingdom. And if you'll posture yourself that way, allow Jesus to be the Lord of your life, you are in for the ride of your life. God will do amazing things in and through you. But it starts with that heart change, that thinking change. And so I, I wanna pray a prayer that gives you an opportunity to respond to the Lord, to say, Lord, I, I want you as my priority, not just a part of my life, but my priority, the rightful place that he is meant to be in your world. We bow our heads for that prayer together. And I know that for some of you, this is a decision to not just know about Jesus, but to follow Jesus. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you gave your whole life on the cross for me. That you died, you rose again and offer a new life in relationship with you. I ask you to forgive my past and I confess you as my savior. And Lord, today, I confess you as the Lord of my life. You are my priority, and I'll follow you with all of my heart. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening with us today. If you enjoyed it, check out more messages like this at celebrationedmonton.com or on the Celebration Church mobile app. If you'd like to partner with us financially, you can give on our website at celebrationedmonton.com. Come back next week to hear another great message.